Well, this was supposed to be the final message in the Deuteronomy Overview series. As part of our larger Pentateuch series, we've been kind of working at for a couple of years now on Sunday evenings. We've kept a pretty good pace going for the sake of giving a flavor, at least, for the importance of Deuteronomy. And so we've moved fairly quickly. But I decided this week that this last message just needed to be divided into two for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, chapters 33 and 34 of Deuteronomy present um, similar but rich themes that are different enough that I felt like they deserved their own attention. And the other reason is I just wasn't ready to say goodbye. I really, quite honestly, we have seen the plan of God for redemptive history. We have seen such glories of the entire plan as outlined in Genesis through Deuteronomy is really a reflection of the entire plan of God outlined in the whole Bible. We've seen the electing love of God for Israel and how that encourages us in the church. So I just wanted to take a little extra time if that's okay. We have until eternity and and, uh, we're just kind of biding our time until you hear Moses teach Deuteronomy anyway. So tonight we'll look at the theme of the promise of covenant salvation. And next week, to close out Deuteronomy, we'll look at the theme of the author of covenant salvation. So for tonight, turn to Deuteronomy 33. Interestingly, about Deuteronomy 33, after all the predictions of failure and apostasy and doom and judgment that Moses has given Israel, all the fatherly stern warnings against forsaking God and his law, beginning in chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, All of these predictions of doom and gloom. Now Moses looks beyond this coming apostasy of Israel. And like a typical ancient Near Eastern father would do from his deathbed, Moses gives his blessing to his people. But this isn't just any blessing. It's a prophetic blessing. It's a Holy Spirit inspired blessing of the coming days for Israel as a nation. And these predictive blessings here in chapter 33 that Moses is going to give, they're in such contrast and such counterpoint to the dark and ominous warnings that he's been giving in the the past few chapters that it's going to be very apparent to the hearer that God's ultimate plan for Israel is to bless them, to give them peace, to give them prosperity. Now, to be honest with you, I don't have much of an outline for you tonight because the text really kind of organizes itself. Basically, Deuteronomy 33 makes one overriding point. And that one point is that God loves his people with a promise-keeping love. God loves his people with a promise-keeping love. And the whole chapter will prove this. But if it's helpful to you, if you're used to taking notes, I'll give you one key word for each of the tribes of Israel that we're going to look at tonight. And so, really, I'm going to keep this simple tonight. We're just going to walk through this blessing of Moses and then give a couple of applications at the end. Now, there is a parallel text which helps inform our understanding of Deuteronomy 33. And so if you can manage it, you might want to go ahead and turn to Genesis 49 also and have that handy. If you have a couple of ribbons in your Bible, you can uh, maybe use that because we'll go back and forth a few times. And I think that will be helpful to us. And we'll see what Genesis 49 here is is about in a minute as well. Now, the structure of Deuteronomy 33 is simple. Moses gives an introduction, then he gives blessings to all the tribes of Israel, then he gives a conclusion which very much mirrors the introduction. And so let's look at the introduction first. Deuteronomy 33, the first five verses read, 
This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Now, we'll stop right there just for a moment. This is important because these here are now the last words of Moses on this earth. And so it would, it would be good for us to pay attention. Verse 2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sair upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, where the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Now this is primarily a reference to the official beginning of Israel and in in reference to Deuteronomy, this just happened uh, 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. The obvious comparison here that we would make, and I've already mentioned this to you, is the set of oracles and predictions given by Jacob to his 12 sons in Genesis 49. And we'll pop back and forth a few times there. But here's the difference. When you compare Jacob's oracles, his prophecies over the 12 sons to the prophecies of Moses over the tribes of Israel, there's a qualitative major difference. In Genesis 49, Jacob's oracles are sometimes positive and sometimes oracles of coming failure and judgment. I I mean, picture this. You're a father with several sons around you and you say to the oldest one, all blessing will be to you to the second one. What a great kid you've been to the third one, eh, to the fourth one. That was Jacob's, you know, a couple of those boys looking at each other. Hey, what about me? He was very honest with them. And so in Genesis 49, Jacob's oracles are sometimes positive, sometimes really very uh, chilling. But the blessing of Moses looks beyond that, looks beyond all the discipline of God to the, to the eschatological final result, the end times result of God's promises to Abraham to bless the nation that would come from his loins. Let me just give you one example. Look at Genesis 49, 3 and 4 and just keep your finger in Deuteronomy 33. Genesis 49, 3 and 4 to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. That sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Now, compare that to Deuteronomy 33, verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. It's not extensive, but it is a prayer of safety and security for Reuben. So there's a a qualitative difference. And in fact, the promises made to each of the tribes, when you put them together as a composite whole, what we really get is a clearer picture of Israel's future under the rule and reign of Christ, what it's going to be like. And so we'll put that all together as we go. And we should also note that unlike almost all of Deuteronomy, there are almost no exhortations, no warnings, no instructions. This is simply a one-way conditional promise from God to love his people forever, no matter what. There's no, no strings attached. And so what we see in these first five verses that we just read is the imagery of a, a heavenly warrior king, God himself, marching in front of his armies in defense of those he's chosen to be his subjects and to receive his blessing. 
And in verse 5, thus the Lord became king in Jezurun. Jezurun is just a poetic name used for Israel, and it means to be straight, to be pleasing. I'll give you another meaning for it a little bit later. It's a name for the perfected ideal character of a completed Israel. It's a name filled with love and affection and and tenderness. It's only used four times. It's used once in Deuteronomy 32.15. Here in verse 5, it's used again at the end of Deuteronomy 33. And then in Isaiah 44.2. And it emphasizes the election of Israel. First of all, Isaiah 44.2, Jezurun whom I have chosen. And ironically, when it's used in 32.15 here in Deuteronomy, it presents a paradox Jezurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. The paradox is that the one who will be perfected, resisted sanctification, resisted perfection. And here, though, Jezurun is presented at the end of the introduction, verse 5, and at the beginning of the conclusion in verse 26. And that will be important for us to point out a little bit later. But for now, let's just look at Moses' blessing on each of the tribes. And I'll just give you a key word for each one if that helps you to kind of hang your hat on a peg here. Let's look at Reuben first. And the key word for Reuben will be grace. The key word for Reuben is grace. Again, verse 6, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. This is a pronouncement of grace upon Reuben. Even in the midst of the terrible legacy of Reuben, the son of Jacob, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. He's the one who had the responsibility to carry on the pride of the family, to carry on the family legacy. Normally, this would have been a permanent place of prominence. But Reuben forfeited this right because of his sin. We already read his, the curse of his father, Jacob, in Genesis 49. But why, why that rebuke in Genesis 49? Well, you recall that Genesis 35 records that Reuben seduced one of his father's concubines, Bilhah, who was also the mother of Reuben's brothers, Naphtali and Dan. This isn't just about sexual sin, although that side of it is certainly horrible. When a son goes sexually to a woman that belongs to his father, this is blatantly in the ancient Near East an attempt to take power. This is an attempt to to take the power of his father. Jacob was a king-like figure. He had a large family. He had tremendous wealth. He had servants. And to take one of his wives or concubines was to try to assume control of the family, to take power. And so what did Jacob do? Jacob took power from him. He would no longer be the all-important firstborn. Never would be. But while Jacob placed this restriction on Reuben. Reuben lost much and he was dishonored. And yet Reuben as a tribe will continue to exist, which is more than could be said for a typical ancient Near Eastern family. Generally speaking, in that ancient time, if a son did that to his father, that son was executed. And so Reuben has shown grace. How do we know that Reuben will continue to exist? Two reasons. Moses said, let Reuben live and not die. But then if you skipped all the way to the end of our Bible, Revelation 21.12 says that the 12 gates of New Jerusalem will be named after the 12 sons of Jacob. What does that mean? It means that A, Reuben himself, personally, the man, will be saved, and B, that Israel as a whole continues on in perpetuity, that Israel is there, and a gate is named after this man. What does this remind us of? Well, it reminds me of the fact that 
there are Christians who may not get much of a heavenly reward, but they will get heaven. In other words, uh, we think about 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so the key word for Reuben is grace, that ultimately, though he, he shamed himself and shamed his whole tribe in so many ways, he will be there in the kingdom. And then we would move on to Judah. The key word for Judah would be king. King. Judah is identified among all the tribes as the Messianic tribe. And again, back in Genesis 49, look with me at Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, all the nations of the world. So the king's scepter will come to Judah. And that will be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in Deuteronomy 33, Moses gives two prayers for Judah. Verse 7. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. That's the first prayer. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. That's the second prayer. First prayer, bring him to his people. Second prayer, contend for him, fight for him, defend him, give him, uh, give him what he needs to be a help against his adversaries. Now, just a little note here. It says, with your hands contend for him. This is presented in the English Standard Version as a second person verb with your hands. But the Hebrew is third person. With his hands, he contends for himself. I think that gives us a more accurate picture of the power of this king. That he can take care of himself. And yet, the prayer is to be a help against his adversaries. This could be looking ahead to the time when Judah will be left almost entirely alone by ten of the other tribes. And the kingdom will split. But I think it's more accurate for us to remember that the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, is a unit. And we've already seen the clear similarities between the oracles of Jacob over his sons in Genesis 49. And here, this oracle of Moses, it, it's not somehow in a vacuum by itself. These two are connected. There's a, there's a continuity. Moses would expect that those who read Genesis 49 are also reading Deuteronomy 33. And so, really, the oracles of Deuteronomy 33 are more of a continuation of Jacob's oracle. Jacob's oracle goes into the future. Moses' oracles go into the far future. And so, Jacob, in Genesis 49, has already said that the king of Israel will come through Judah. The scepter will not depart from him. Now, Moses is praying, beginning in verse 7, bring him to his people. Bring the king to his people. So it makes much more sense to see this as a prayer to support the work of whom? Of Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then we get to Levi, and the key word for Levi, we'll say, is truth. The key word for Levi is truth, and we'll spend a, a bit on Levi because he's a little more complicated. Deuteronomy 33, verse 8. And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thumim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa." Whom you quarreled, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, 
who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Now, in Jacob's oracles, in Genesis 49, Simeon and Levi are addressed together. Levi, Simeon, Simeon, Levi. They are the second and third sons of Jacob's wife, Leah. And it's not a happy prophecy. Again, look at Genesis 49. Look back at verse 5. They're not in the same order in Genesis as they are in Deuteronomy. Verse 5 of chapter 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my, O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now what is this talking about? What was this violence? Well, Jacob's remembering the terrible vengeance that Simeon and Levi took upon the Shechemites because their sister Dinah had been violated. They murdered all the men of the town and they made the surrounding peoples hate and be suspicious of Jacob's family. And so Jacob cursed these two sons by predicting that they would be scattered in Israel, that they wouldn't, in other words, enjoy the same land inheritance that their brothers would. They would not have that same land inheritance. What happened with Simeon? Well, Simeon, even at the giving of Deuteronomy, had already been heavily involved in idolatry at Baal Peor in Numbers 25. And you recall that a leader, a prince of the tribe of Simeon, openly brought a pagan woman into the camp and committed adultery with her in front of everybody as an act of idolatry. You recall that Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, speared both of them at the same time to avert the wrath of God on Israel. A little side note, by the way, and I've been asked this question before, do I take disobedient children who have, had horrible, who have become horrible, horrible human beings, do I take them out of my will when I get older if they don't repent? Jacob's answer would have been yes. He said, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In other words, they don't get the same inheritance that the others get. What happened with Simeon? Joshua 19, 1 through 9 indicates that the territory of Simeon was simply engulfed by the territory of Judah. That Simeon's territory was actually legally inside Judah's territory, completely surrounded. In other words, Simeon was a renter and Judah was an owner. Never really owned their land. What about Levi? As part of their tabernacle and eventual temple service on behalf of Israel, they were not given land to own. And this isn't necessarily a, a punishment, but it is interesting that Simeon and Levi lumped together are the only two tribes that don't really receive a real land inheritance. Simeon isn't even mentioned here in Moses' blessing, but since this oracle and the oracle of Jacob help interpret one another, we can easily assume that just as Jacob lumped Simeon and Levi together, Moses is doing the same thing. What happened with Levi? Well, as I mentioned, Levi was, was selected for special service to Israel in Numbers 3. The priesthood of Israel was to come from Levi, Exodus 6. 
The rest of the tribes would assist in the care, or the rest of the tribe rather would assist in the care and the upkeep of the tabernacle and in running the religious life of Israel. Verse 8 Give to Levi your Thumim and your Urim to your godly one. These are the sacred stones which were cast to determine the will of God in certain matters. Thumim and Urim basically mean good and bad or yes and no. And so it was, these were used at times in prayer to the Lord, should we go right? And you apparently would throw these two stones and whichever one landed at the right spot, yes, okay, we'll go that way. And that's how they determined the, the will of God. It was a, an act of religious leadership. But really what this is, is the use of a figure of speech called synecdoche, where a part represents the whole. The thumim and the urim represent the whole of the office and the function of the priesthood. And it says here, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah. That's the same place. Massa and Meribah is exactly the same place. And you recall that it was here that Israel tested the Lord by arguing with Moses about the lack of water. But here in Deuteronomy 33 verse 8. It says that part of the purpose of that terrible time. Was for the Lord to test the Levites. And what happened? Well who was the principal representative of the Levites? It was Moses. A Levite. And at Meribah. Moses as the prime representative of the Levites. He cried out to God, he trusted God, and he did exactly what God said. In other words, the Levites, represented by Moses, passed the test. But there was another time of testing. Verse 9, Who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children. Now, in this case, that is a good thing. Look what it says about Levi. For they, that is the Levites, they observed your word and kept your covenant. What is this speaking of? This is a reference to the incident of the golden calf in Exodus 32. That while Moses was meeting with God on the mountain, his brother Aaron led the people into idolatry, idolatry by giving the people what they wanted, a God they could see. Levi didn't give in and in fact became the instrument of God's discipline. Listen as I read from Exodus 32, beginning in verse 26. You can just listen. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. In other words, the Levites said that faithfulness to God is even more important than family. They guarded the covenant. Into verse 9, they kept your covenant. What does this remind us of? This is remind us of what Jesus said. He said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, there's no more me first. There's no more family first. It's only Christ first. There are no divided loyalties. You're loyal to Christ and Christ alone. And what will the Levites do? 
Well, once Israel settles into the promised land, the Levites will have two primary responsibilities. In verse 10, now let me do the second one first. The second one, they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. In other words, they'll lead the religious life of Israel, which was essentially the governing system as well. The, the tithe that was given by Israel to the Levites was for the support of the Levites, the support of the theocratic government, so to speak. All of life was governed by religious life, and so the Levites were in charge of that. That was their first duty, the, the second duty rather. But the first one that's listed here in verse 10, it's not one that's mentioned hardly at all so far in the Pentateuch. That is the role of teaching Israel the rules and law of God. The Pentateuch, and of course the implication is all the subsequent inspired books of the Old Testament, Look what they're to do. Verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. Why has this not been mentioned before? Because there's only one Levite that's been teaching Jacob or Israel the law of God. That is the lead Levite, Moses. But after Moses is gone, they will need Bible teachers. And so this is the farewell of Moses. And he passes on the all important function of preaching the Bible to the Levites. In Israel, to be without a teacher of the law was considered a curse. It was considered a terrible thing, and it was a sign of God's punishment. Second Chronicles 15.3 says, For a long time Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. In other words, to be without a teacher of the word is to be without God. There's no connection to God. In fact, I'd like to show you how important this was and how this was worked out. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 17. And we'll spend just a, a couple of minutes here. Second Chronicles 17. If you have a hard time finding it, it's usually right after First Chronicles. So that helps a little bit. Second Chronicles 17. Now, just for a little context, Second Chronicles chronologically is the end of the Old Testament as far as chronology is concerned. Um, we come to the end of Second Chronicles and basically you get to the end of Old Testament history with a couple of little other editions. Uh, Last year, uh, almost exactly a year ago, and I remember it was on September 13th, um, I preached a sermon from Second Chronicles 20 concerning King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah. I mentioned it briefly this morning as well. Jehoshaphat wasn't a perfect king by any means, but he did determine that the people of God were to gather and worship no matter what was happening around them, up to and including a plague or what we would call today a pandemic, Jehoshaphat is the one who said the people of God will gather even if there's a plague. We didn't have time to highlight the other successes of Jehoshaphat, but one of them was that he took this blessing of Moses on the Levites and he took it to heart in a very practical manner. The northern kingdom of Israel had gone completely rogue, completely apostate. They were totally useless. And as such, they were hostile toward her brothers to the south. Look with me at 2 Chronicles 17, beginning in verse 1. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel, the northern kingdom. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel." Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. So Jehoshaphat was a, a king who stood for principle 
And in fact, the commentary on him is one of the highest compliments anyone in the Bible ever receives. In verse 6, this incredible compliment, chapter 17, verse 6, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places in the Asherim out of Judah. But this compliment, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. What does this mean? His heart was courageous. At a heart level, at an internal level, he was passionate to know God's will, to know his ways, to follow after God. But does that make him courageous just by having that desire? That's not where the courage was. Any of us can say, I have a desire to follow God and that can remain completely private and that's not actually an act of courage. What was the courage? He took Moses at his word and he utilized the Levites the way they were meant to be. Look at verse 7. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, remember these are the men we talked about this morning who were, were appointed to the government, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah. These are the five officials to teach in the cities of Judah and with them the Levites. And then he lists a whole bunch of them. And with these Levites at the end of verse 8, Elishama and Jehoram. What do we have here? What are they doing? Verse 9, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. That would have been a set of giant scrolls that they're carrying around. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. This is huge. Let me show you two important pieces in these three verses here. First of all, the first five men listed are men in his government. What kind of men did King Jehoshaphat surround himself with? Men who knew the law of God and in fact could teach it. I think that's an amazing example. And the second fact I'd like you to see here, he sent out a force for the word of God, 16 Bible teachers. This is a massive effort. Verse 9 says, they went through all the cities of Judah. They taught among all the people. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus and his disciples, doesn't it? And Jehoshaphat, centuries ahead of his time, did this. And look what God did as a result of his people being driven by the word of God taught to them. Verse 10. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. This is important because the, the, the nation of Judah is so small in this time, you can literally walk across it in a day. It's that small. And so you, you think about something like Rhode Island being surrounded by, by Texas and by California and by Alaska, and yet Texas and California and Alaska are scared to death of Rhode Island. That's what's happening here. Why is that? Because God honors a nation that will live by his word. The following verses explain that, that the surrounding nations began bringing Jehoshaphat massive quantities of wealth to him. And in fact, Jehoshaphat amassed an army with a total of nearly 1.2 million men. Put this in perspective in a couple of ways. When Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, they left with an army of 600,000 plus men. That's half the size of the army that Jehoshaphat has Fast forward to today, if you include all active duty and reserve personnel, the United States military has 2.2 million in the military. Jehoshaphat, this is thousands of years ago, has nearly that same number. He's powerful. And these huge nations around him, and it's listed here, all the things that they're bringing to him are just 
dumping wealth on him, basically saying, don't attack us, please. Why was this the case? Because God blesses a nation that is taught the word of God. Turn back to Deuteronomy 33. So the Levites, they didn't get a land inheritance. But God used them mightily in Israel. And in fact, look how important the role of the Bible teachers of the land would be. Moses prays for their skill. He prays for their protection. Verse 11 Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Crush the loins of his adversaries. What does that mean? It means don't let spiritual opposition multiply. Don't let it reproduce. Let the word of God be that which reproduces. Not evil, not wickedness. But what about the end times future? What happens with the Levites during the reign of Christ in the future? Well, if we put together the fact that Ezekiel 43, 44, 45, and 48 says that some of the Levites will once again minister before the Lord during the reign of Christ on earth, put that together with the future promise of Isaiah 54, 13, that all your children shall be taught by the Lord, we can assume with some strength of argument that the Levites, again, will be the great Bible teachers of Israel. Once again. By the way... Just as a reminder, Moses is a Levite. He will be in the kingdom with us. So in all likelihood, you'll get to hear Moses teach Deuteronomy. What an improvement that will be. I don't want to be there when that happens because everybody will be looking at me going, how come you didn't say that? Well, I'm not Moses. But you'll get to hear the word of God. And one more little note. Some of the Levites will have a portion of land of Israel that Ezekiel 48-11 calls a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place. And the rest of the Levites will also now own the equivalent of about 40 square miles of land just for them. They've waited 3,500 years so far, and yet God is gracious to them. And you might say, uh, what about poor old Simeon? Grace abounds. Ezekiel 48.25 promises in the millennial kingdom of Christ that Simeon will have his own territory. Grace, grace, grace. How about Benjamin? Key word for Benjamin is affection. And this is easy to see. Deuteronomy 33.12 Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. What is this? this is, it's worded a little bit oddly, but if we take this apart, this is a picture of a small child being carried in the arms of his father. Between his shoulders isn't, isn't the idea of putting him on his back. It's the idea of holding him like a baby. Benjamin was the youngest of the 12 brothers. The tribe of Benjamin alone stayed faithful to Judah when the northern kingdom split off. The other 10 tribes split. He stayed with the smaller, more vulnerable nation There's Benjamin, still the baby. All of you moms in here, you know that the youngest is always the baby. Doesn't matter if he's 35, right? Still the baby. But this also represents God's affection for all of his people. But like often happens with the youngest child, Benjamin's blessing passes by pretty fast. And now we come to his famed older brother, the 11th of the 12th in birth order, Joseph. The key word for Joseph will be honor. Verse 13, 
And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above. Or you can translate that, the dew from heaven, the rain from heaven, and of the deep that crouches beneath. With the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush, may these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. You notice that Joseph is paired up with Benjamin as the only two sons of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Given the love that Jacob had for Joseph and the amazing man and savior of Israel that Joseph was in Egypt, we're not surprised to find Joseph represented in full glory for five verses in this oracle. Joseph, you recall, is the father of Ephraim and Manasseh for whom the tribes or the half-tribes of Israel are named. And he's the son that the older sons should have been. He's, he's how they should have been. And in fact, Joseph was instrumental in the humbling and the repentance of his ten older brothers after they had sold him into slavery. But look at the blessings on Joseph. Two major prayers for blessing. First, blessing on Joseph's produce, verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, the rain or the dew from above, the choicest gifts of heaven, um, probably more likely just speaking of water. And then the deep that crouches beneath, that's waters from below, meaning that in, in farmland there's endless supplies of water. Verse 14, continual harvests all year long of different crops. Verse 15, crops even growing at different elevations in Israel. And verse 16 is a picture of storehouses bursting with the produce of the tribe of Joseph. Now, does this sound familiar? Do you remember what God promised Joseph when Joseph was going to essentially take charge of Egypt? That for seven years, the produce of the land would be tremendous. This is Egypt all over again, except without a famine following. It's just abundance, abundance, abundance. That's the first major prayer. But the second prayer for blessing, it seems that the blessing on Joseph is also to be as the enforcer of righteousness. The enforcer of righteousness. Verse 17, a firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. It seems that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh may make up the security forces of Christ during his reign on earth to keep the nations in line according to the perfect justice and will of God, that they'll at least play a major part there. You notice how the people of Joseph will be recognized like a firstborn is recognized. That word is even used in verse 17. The millennial kingdom reign of Christ where Joseph is blessed beyond belief, this seems to be the ultimate fulfillment of Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37, in which he saw his whole family bowing before him. And certainly this was partly fulfilled when Joseph was in power in Egypt. But it's fulfilled in a much grander sense in that the whole tribe is treated as a firstborn. Then you get to two more brothers, and they're considered together, sort of like Simeon and Levi were. You get to Zebulun and Issachar. Zebulun and Issachar, their key word would be joy. Joy for Zebulun and Issachar. Verse 18, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar in your tents. 
They shall call peoples to their mountain. They shall offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Zebulun and Issachar, or I suppose we could call them Zeb and Izzy because they were always together. They're the fifth and sixth sons of Jacob by Leah. And so like Benjamin and Joseph, Simeon and Levi, they're kind of lumped together. They receive the blessing that Moses has already promised to all of Israel earlier. Deuteronomy 28.6, blessed shall you be when you come in, blessed shall you be when you go out. Meaning you're blessed in everything you do. They're kind of the, the golden kids. Everything that they touch is just good. And they're to rejoice in the blessings of God. In fact, that's the only real direct command in this whole song. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar in your tents. Verse 19 says there'll be a means to call other nations to worship God. They'll be be the evangelists of the millennial kingdom to call the lost to worship Christ. And their wealth will be drawn from the sea. We've already seen this in Genesis 49, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Just a little side note. The most major port of Israel today is the port of Haifa, which handles 30 million tons of cargo every year. And since the borders of Israel were blocked right after World War II, the port of Haifa was the major way that Jews immigrated to Israel in the 1940s. The port of Haifa is where? In the ancient territory of Zebulun. That's where they are. Today, they're the 87th most busy port on planet Earth. They will go to number one during the reign of Christ, since all the nations will be bringing their wealth to the Lord Jesus. Part of the blessing of Zebulun, of course, is that Jesus grew up there. The town of Nazareth is in Zebulun, and that's where our Lord grew up. So Zebulun and Issachar, joy. How about Gad? Key word with Gad would be security. Security. Verses 20 and 21. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad, Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself. For there a commander's portion was reserved and he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. The blessing on Gad from both Jacob and now Moses focuses on their fighting ability. Genesis 49 verse 19 Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. In other words, the reputation of Gad was that if foreign tribes wanted to come in and try and steal from them, that they would regret it. That Gad would chase after him and take it to him. Now you recall that even before the conquest, the tribes of Reuben, Manasseh, and Gad all requested land in the lush Transjordan region to the, to the east of the Jordan River before you get to the, to the promised land proper on the west of the Jordan. Moses somewhat begrudgingly gave it to them as long as they would help their brothers fight the Canaanites. And so they did. And the portion given to Gad was by far the biggest and the best portion. It was the, as verse 21 says here, the commander's portion. It was the biggest and best part. Their territory is on the east side of the Jordan River all the way from the the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the northern tip of the Dead Sea. In other words, they control all of the Jordan River on the east side, the whole thing. Just a little note on this when we talk about maps. The Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs still keeps and maintains official maps 
of where the 12 tribes of Israel are to go according to the allotment of the Old Testament. That is according to their belief that God gave them this land 4,000 years ago and they still track which tribe gets what land. And their hope is that when peace comes that they'll be able to say to anyone who knows their heritage that here is where you may move. Here's where you may make your home. They still keep those maps. How about Dan? Key word for Dan, we'll use two words. More grace. More grace. Verse 22, and of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. Dan was Jacob's fifth overall son in birth order. In Genesis 49, 16, and 17, he's also pictured with an animal metaphor. Genesis 49, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And so he's pictured as a, as a serpent, a strong fighter. And here in Deuteronomy 33:22, he's a lion's cub. It doesn't mean a little bitty cub. It means a young lion at the height of his strength. So what is this about? Well, here he's a powerful young lion leaping from Bashan. Interestingly, Judges chapter 18 records that the tribe of Dan conquered the city of Laish and they renamed it Dan. And this attack would have been mounted from only one area that they could hide in and then attack, a surprise attack, the neighboring area called Bashan. That that's where they really established their strength. Now there's nothing in this text that makes that connection really clear. But the bigger picture of God's grace to, to Dan is implied here. The sad part is that Dan led the way. They led the way in setting up idol worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually as a tribe, they would be disciplined by God. In the list of the 144,000 sealed Jews in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 during the coming great tribulation, one tribe is missing. Dan is not there. They are not among the sealed. But again, more grace. In the list of land allotments in Ezekiel 48, after the Great Tribulation, during the millennial reign of Christ, once again, Dan is an heir of God in the land of Israel. And you can point to a map exactly where the territory of Dan will be. More grace. How about Naphtali? Key word for Naphtali we'll call favor. Verse 23. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. Naphtali is a highly favored people, sated with favor. It means full of favor, satiated, overflowing with the favor of God. And this tribe will possess the lake in the south. They'll have the entire western shore of of the Sea of Galilee and all the territory north of that which means that they control the south where the Sea of Galilee is. They have a a, a tremendously wonderful area. We said earlier that Nazareth is in Zebulun where Jesus was raised and Naphtali along with Zebulun came to be known as the region of Galilee. And this is where Jesus did a significant portion of his ministry. And in fact, Galilee would come to have a huge population of Gentiles to whom Jesus ministered, to whom he gave the gospel of Christ. The nations were very much represented in Galilee. So it's no wonder that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9 
But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, where the nations are represented. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And what's the great light? Isaiah 9, 6, for uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And they got to be the recipient of that blessing. How about Asher? Key word for Asher is happiness. Happiness. We don't talk about happiness that much. And I'll tell you why. There's a good reason for it. Happiness is related to the word what's happening. And what is happening in your life isn't often a source of joy and happiness. It's usually a source of, of anguish. We talk more about joy. Joy is that which rides above your circumstances. And sometimes we just say, I just want to be happy. And that sounds kind of hedonistic and it sounds kind of shallow because we understand as Christians that when you suffer, sometimes happiness isn't always part of the deal. Somebody going through chemotherapy and having that needle put in their arm isn't going, I'm so happy right now. But they can say, I'm joyful. But Asher is just happiness, that what's happening is good, that circumstances are good as well. Verse 24, of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze and as your days, so shall your strength be. Asher means happiness. That's what his name means and he's called the most blessed of sons be Asher. He's the favorite among his brothers. You notice something? You notice that there seems to be a lot of favorite sons? Isn't that the nature of the blessing of God on his children? You're my favorite, but you're my favorite, but you're my favorite, but you're my favorite. What is this dipping your foot in oil? Speaking of olive oil, it speaks of tremendous wealth and prosperity often found in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 29, I'm sorry, in Job 29, Job remembers that he used to be wealthy. And he says in, Deuteron- in Job 29.6 that he was like a, it was like a rock would pour out streams of olive oil. It's like bathing in something super expensive. That, that you would take a little bit of olive oil because it was expensive. And he says, I just wash my feet with it. I have so much of it. There's this, there's this happiness. And, and he has the bars of iron and bronze. This is total safety and invincibility. This is pretty important because Asher occupies the northwestern coast of Israel. And so no invasion from the sea will ever come upon them. They can be happy and content and enjoy the goodness of the land and the goodness of the Lord. And now the song ends like it began. Once again, God is the focus, and once again, he's the mighty heavenly warrior king on a chariot defending his people. Verse 26, There is none like God, O Jezurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. So Israel lived in safety, and Jacob lived alone in a land of Grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. I'd like to leave you with three applications tonight, all of which I think will be a comfort to you. First application, a major theme in this whole song is the sovereign choice of God. 
the sovereign choice of God. God is presented as God in control of all things. That's the focus. God is the focus of the introduction. He's the focus of the conclusion. Look at the sovereign choice of God, verses 2 and 3. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sire upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with a flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Who is the emphasis here? It's God, God, God. Israel was his choice. And in verse 26, God rides through the heavens to help his people. This is total power. This is total sovereignty. And of course, the entire blessing, the whole chapter is a decree of blessing. That is the ultimate definition of sovereignty. that You decree what will happen in the future. That's total sovereign control. And of course, the New Testament is completely consistent with that, this aspect of the character of God. In fact, the New Testament quotes God's conversation with Moses to assert the sovereignty of God. Did you know that? Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, Israel's hope was not in her behavior. If you read Jacob's blessings slash curses of Genesis 49, it's a roll of the dice. What's going to happen with Israel? But you put it together with the blessings of Moses and you see sovereign God bringing them to a glorious final state of blessing. Israel's hope is in the sovereign choice of God. Psalm 118 verses 1 and 2, O give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. And in the same way, your hope is not in your behavior. Your hope is not in your ability to be good because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your hope is in the sovereign choice of God. As James 2 verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Let me give you a second thought to leave with you. Not only is a major theme of this passage the sovereign choice of God, but you should use this to see what your future is like. Remember, the fulfillment of these prophecies ultimately happen only when Christ is reigning on the earth. We haven't seen these happen yet. And what will that day be like? Well, all we need to do is string together our key words to know what we have to look forward to. This is what the coming of Christ will be like when he establishes his kingdom. Grace with a king. There's truth, affection, honor, joy, security, more grace, favor, happiness. Do you ever have a day where you get near the end of the day and you go, wow, nothing bad has happened today. I I need to go to bed right now before anything bad happens. And it's kind of a surprise to you, isn't it? It's like, what an odd thing. It was just a a, a perfect day. Generally, to make that happen, what do you have to do? You have to leave town. You have to hide. You have to leave your phone at the bottom of the ocean. You have to do something radical. Grace with a king, truth, affection, honor, joy, security, more grace, favor, happiness. You ever been so happy for a moment that you just feel your heart bursting? How about that every day? That you wake up to that and you go to sleep to that and you live that all day long. One final thought. Not only are we comforted by the sovereign choice of God, not only should we use this to see what our future is like, I hope you've seen here the tenderness with which God views you. 
Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. Curses and doom and hardship and agony and death and destruction and punishment and discipline. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And yet after fully knowing that Israel is going to be apostate and spend thousands of years outside the blessing of God, at the beginning and at the end of this blessing, God still calls Israel Jezirun, my upright one, my righteous one, my holy one. This reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, you are viewed as Jezirun, as the Holy One of God, as the Righteous One of God. And you might be saying, I I sinned against God five minutes before I got here tonight. I'm eager to go home. I'm sinning against God right now. But you know how God views you? Only with a smile, because of the cross. You are Jezurun. You are the upright one. In fact, Revelation 20 verse 6 calls you blessed, holy priests of God and of Christ who will reign with him. Is the church Israel? No. Do you get to ride the coattails of all the blessings of being Jezurun? Absolutely. I don't know about you, but that helps me face tomorrow with great ease and joy. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father... How gracious you are. How gracious you are, Lord. God loves his people with a promise-keeping love. You love your people with a promise-keeping love. Lord, I pray that we would be confident in your love even when we're not confident in ourselves. We have no confidence in self. We have no confidence in our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. We may only have the righteousness of Christ. And for that, we give you thanks. We give you honor. Lord, may it be that this is our final Lord's Day on this earth. May Christ come and bring his people home this week that we might see the fulfillment of these promises. But should Christ continue to wait and tarry, I pray, Lord, that we would look ahead, that we would encourage one another with these words, that we would see the tremendous blessing that is coming to earth someday, that even as The world around us seems to be crumbling into just piles of wickedness. We ask you, Lord, to keep the smiles on our faces that there will be some day where we don't just look to have joy even when we're unhappy, but we look to be happy every day for all eternity in the presence of our Savior and in the presence of your people, your Jezurun. Thank you, Lord for your sovereign choice of the people that you would save. Thank you for choosing us unto salvation. You are gracious and you are kind. And may we give you glory with our lives, with our upright behavior this coming week. And we would pray in Christ's name, amen.